Isaac Asimov is one of the three most important science fiction writers of the 40s and 50s. That's Alfred Guy, a Yale scholar who teaches the history of science fiction literature. Guy is talking about Isaac Asimov, one of the most prolific authors in history. Asimov was a pathbreaking sci-fi writer, but his more than 500 books also included volumes on the Greeks, the Romans, Shakespeare, the Bible, and much more. He became one of the most learned men in history. But as a precocious teenager, he was rejected by Columbia University. It's obviously insane that Isaac Asimov didn't get into Columbia undergraduate, that he showed himself very quickly to be one of the most productive and intelligent people in America. And the notion that there were, you know, a thousand people better qualified to go to Columbia at the time in New York is pretty unlikely. In 1935, when Asimov was 15 and applying to Columbia, the Ivy League school wanted no part of him. And Asimov knew what was going on. 60 years later, he wrote in his autobiography about his Columbia interview, quote, the interviewer would not take me. I know why. Columbia College's quota for Jews the coming year was already filled. He suggested I agree to enter Seth Lowe Junior College. Now, today, it's pretty rare for a 15-year-old to apply to college. But back then, a lot more students skipped grades. And in New York City, a lot of the grade skippers were Jewish. In fact, Columbia told him that the reason they were rejecting him was his age. But as we'll see, that's not really the whole story. The key to the whole story is Seth Lowe Junior College, this little campus in Brooklyn run by Columbia, where they shunted Asimov and hundreds of other predominantly Jewish students. So what was Seth Lowe Junior College? And why was the brilliant Isaac Asimov directed there instead? Seth Lowe Junior College, which existed from 1928 to 1938, was a separate campus. You might call it a segregated campus in Brooklyn, 11 miles from the real Columbia campus. It was one of Columbia's many attempts to deal with a changing student population that they felt was contaminating its pristine Protestant campus. And it's part of the bigger story of how the Ivy League resistance to outsiders shaped all of higher education as we know it. Ultimately, if you want to understand everything that's going on with college admissions today, not just the push for diversity, but the very existence of college applications, the whole crazy rigmarole with essays and interviews and standardized tests, you have to look at that first group that tried to diversify elite schools. You have to look at the Jews. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and this is Gatecrashers, a podcast about how the Jewish experience in the Ivy League shaped American higher ed and how it shaped America at large. Gatecrashers will take place over eight episodes, one focusing on each Ivy League school, Harvard and Yale, Princeton and Dartmouth, Columbia and Brown, and the University of Pennsylvania and Cornell. Collectively, the Jewish experience at these elite Northeastern schools was the template for everything we think about college. How it can be elitist and exclusionary, but also an engine of social mobility and a place where young people can reinvent themselves. Before the early 1900s, students at elite universities were not used to sharing their campuses with minorities. At schools like Harvard, Yale, and Columbia, there were almost no Blacks, almost no Hispanics or Catholics, often no women, and very, very, very few Jews. For the most part, 
the only people who applied were, you know, preppy Protestants. Then, after about 1900, one minority group began to enroll at a much higher rate. Jews, mostly poor Jews, the children of immigrants. And many of the white Christian male students didn't like it one bit. But Jews eventually crashed through the glass ceiling so that by the 1980s, a group that made up 2% of the U.S. population made up a quarter or more of the student body at places like Harvard and Yale. Like all of American history, this story has its triumphant side and its dark side. It's about how American higher education evolved to include first-generation and low-income students. But it's also about how the white Christian establishment went to extraordinary lengths to keep the alien minority out. How extraordinary? That is the subject of Gatecrashers, Episode 1, Columbia and its Forgotten Jewish Campus. Before I get to Columbia, I want to put my own cards on the table. I love the Ivy League. I'm something relatively unusual, a third-generation Jewish Ivy Leaguer. I went to Yale, class of 96. My dad, Tim Oppenheimer, was in the class of 1967. And his dad, Jimmy Oppenheimer, attended Brown University. Now, I should offer a caveat. Papa Jimmy, as he was known, never graduated from Brown. According to family legend, when he ended his freshman year with more money in his account than he'd started with, his dad, my great-grandfather, figured out that Jimmy had been gambling. Pretty well, apparently. So he pulled him out. After Brown, Jimmy finished up at the University of Miami, which was more his speed. But the point is, for my Jewish family, Ivy League schools always seemed within reach. My dad wasn't a particularly rah-rah Yale alumnus, but as a kid, I read his alumni magazine, and I fell in love with the whole Ivy League mythology of privilege and the good life. Preppy clothing, lounging around on leafy quadrangles, and of course, autumn football rivalries, which were invented by Yale and Harvard in the 19th century. I thought of these traditions as my own. But here's the ugly truth. In the precise years when my dad and granddad were getting in, these Ivy League schools did what they could to keep other Jews out, using unspoken or sometimes spoken quotas, using pseudoscientific personality tests, using special committees charged with preserving their school's Protestant character. The invention of the college application and the pre-admission interview are all part of this secret history of keeping out the Jews. For most of these schools' history, nobody had had to worry about keeping Jews out. There weren't many clamoring to get in. Columbia College was founded in 1754 by a bunch of New York Protestants, and for its first century, it remained a fairly parochial institution, very much a local school. Columbia College had a certain cachet in the city. If you were from a wealthy merchant family or you were part of the early Anglo community, uh, you, you sent your son to Columbia. That's Robert McCahey, a historian at Barnard College, which is the women's college of Columbia University. Barnard still exists as an all-female school, even though Columbia College went co-ed in 1983. And he said that in its early years, Columbia was basically a school with no national aspirations but with a strong draw for certain rich New York City families. It was too far to go to Yale, and Harvard was in another world. Columbia had a kind of monopoly over these first families of New York. Now, 
McCahey points out that there were always some Jews at Columbia, but their numbers were small. But then, starting in the 1880s, there was a huge immigration of Eastern European Jews to America. And by 1910, about half the students in New York City public high schools were Jews. Now, Jews surely did not make up half the city. So why was their population in the high schools so large? The reason is that other immigrant populations, like the Irish and the Italians, often let their children quit school after eighth grade, send them off to work, contribute to the family income. Not so with the Jews. They must have had a sense of a kind of social capital that has certain mobility to it, rather than going full-time to work at 14. Columbia had dormitories, but it was also a commuter school, like NYU and the City College of New York. So soon, Jews from all over New York City started coming. They would just walk or hop the subway. In 1914, Columbia Dean Frederick Keppel addressed what he saw as the dirty reputation his school was getting. He wrote, One of the commonest references that one hears with regard to Columbia is that its position at the gateway of European immigration makes it socially uninviting to students who come from homes of refinement. The form which the inquiry takes in these days of slowly dying race prejudice is, isn't Colombia overrun with European Jews who are most unpleasant persons socially? Keppel wasn't wrong that New York City was the gateway to European immigration. At the time that he was writing, the Lower East Side of Manhattan was the largest concentration of Jews in the world. So it stood to reason that many of them would make their way 100 blocks uptown to Colombia. But how many? In the early 1900s, Colombia was about 15% Jewish, which was high compared to the percentage of Jews in the United States, which was only around 3%, but not that high compared to the percentage of Jews in New York City, which by the 1920s was around 25%. That's Lisa Hurt, a Columbia graduate who has researched the history of Jews at her school. And as the Jews were coming in droves, the so-called Knickerbockers, the old-time Protestant New Yorkers descended from the founding Anglo and Dutch families, they were leaving Columbia. Columbia used to be the school of choice for the sons of wealthy New York patricians. Between the years 1900 and 1925, it was no longer that school of choice. Rich, white, wealthy, non-Jewish New Yorkers were choosing Harvard and Yale and Princeton over Columbia, and the Jews were staying. The Jews were coming. Part of the problem, from the Protestants' point of view, was that New York boys were now going off to New England prep schools boarding schools which had relationships with New England colleges, but not with Columbia. Robert McCahey explains. Beginning in the 1880s, some of those families started sending their sons off to prep schools. And the prep schools were almost always identified with one or two colleges. Those kids start going on to Yale, to Harvard, to Princeton. Where they weren't going was Columbia even though their fathers had. Now, the Knickerbocker boys weren't necessarily abandoning Columbia because the Jewish population was rising there. No, they were going off to boarding school, where their classmates were choosing Harvard and Yale. And look, they may also have just concluded that Princeton or Dartmouth was more beautiful, a more pleasant place to spend their college years. Whatever these boys' reasoning, their dads, 
including many on the Columbia Board of Trustees, looked around the campus in Morningside Heights, and they saw a lot of Jews, and it just seemed wrong. And this situation got particularly acute in 1917 and 1918, when a number of Columbia undergraduates left to serve in World War I. It seems that most of those who served were Protestant, and as a result, the campus got even more Jewish. How Jewish did Columbia get after World War I? Enough that in the 1920s, preppy fraternity brothers at Columbia were singing an a cappella song about the Jewiness of their campus. It went something like this. Oh, Harvard's run by millionaires, Yale is run by booze, Cornell's run by farmers' sons, Columbia's run by Jews. So give a cheer for Baxter Street, another one for Pale. And when the little sheenies die, the souls will go to hell. Now, in case you missed it, The song includes the lines, Harvard's run by millionaires, and Yale is run by booze. Cornell's run by farmer's sons. Columbia's run by Jews. And it also includes the line, when the little sheenies die, their souls will go to hell. Sheeny was an old slur for Jews. That's what they were singing at Columbia in the Roaring Twenties. Now, I have a disclosure to make here. We have no idea if that's exactly what the song sounded like. The lyrics survive, but the melody has been lost. So we commissioned a new version. You're welcome. So the good Christian boys at Columbia were so angry at their Jewish classmates, those little sheenies, that they composed a derogatory song about them. And that fraternity ditty, that wasn't the only evidence people thought of Columbia as the Jewish ivy. In 1923, the magazine Vanity Fair ran a humor piece called The American College Credo which purported to explain every major American campus in a single sentence or less. For example, the entry on Yale reads, All Yale men drink terrifically and are generally uncouth. The Cornell entry reads, Cornell men are yokels and hard drinkers. Here's entry 11 about Columbia. It reads, In its entirety, everyone attending Columbia is a Jew. So, with the war over, and the so-called sheenies everywhere on campus, the university trustees turned to Columbia President Nicholas Murray Butler to fix the problem, to reverse the trend, to make the place less Jewish and more Knickerbocker again. President Butler was one of those men, like Winston Churchill, who had such a long and varied career that you can love him or hate him depending on what part of his career you look at. He was a philosopher, a diplomat, and for a few days in 1912, the Republican nominee for vice president. It's a crazy story. No time for it here. Butler would also go on to win the Nobel Peace Prize in 1931. Of course, he was also an admirer of fascist dictator Benito Mussolini. Butler was a complicated man who was immensely influential in many fields. But at Columbia in 1920, Butler wasn't calling the shots. The trustees were. And he did their bidding, introducing a number of creative measures to ensure that the school shed some of its Jewish character. For starters, under President Butler, Columbia began to require an interview. And as astonishing as it might seem now, this was an innovation in American higher education. Up to that point, Columbia and the other Ivies were not particularly selective. 
and they didn't have much of an application process. Basically, if you were minimally competent and could pay the tuition, you could go. So the idea that you had to pass through a rigorous application process, one that included an interview, no less, that was a novelty. Here's Lisa Hurt. It became acceptable for the committee to reject candidates, even candidates who had proper academic qualifications on the grounds of social unfitness. Social unfitness? Historian Robert McCahey says these interviews were pretty transparently about screening out Jews and encouraging them to go elsewhere. The interviews are often waived if you went to a private school. The interview is not to pick out the best, it's to keep out the questionable. So these interviews were really 15 minutes of telling you wonders of City College and NYU and maybe even giving you a token to get down there. So the Columbia interview existed in part to divert Jews to City College or NYU. And in addition to requiring an application and an interview, Columbia added a psychological test, the wonderfully named Thorndike test for mental alertness. It was a psychological test that was imposed. It was seen by some as a way of sort of keeping out those who were using up excessive amounts of their energy in academics. <laughs> you know, they were nerds, and you know, we want to have well-rounded people, and the psychological test might do it. The point of the Thorndike test for mental alertness was, according to a letter written by one Columbia dean, to identify applicants whose achievement exceeded their, quote, native abilities. To put it another way, it was ungentlemanly to do too much homework. It was kind of, you know, Jewish. And there were more anti-Jewish measures, so many more. Nicholas Murray Butler, the Columbia president, worked with his admissions team to reduce the size of each entering class, giving the school a pretext for rejecting completely qualified Jewish students. That very idea of selectivity, the very backbone of college admissions today, was brand new. Until Columbia introduced the concept, they just admitted all reasonably qualified applicants who could afford to come. No longer. Also, Butler's team designed the first real application with lots of questions, a brand new concept in higher ed. Now, when students applied, they had to disclose their religion. And on top of that, they had to answer questions that weren't explicitly about religion, but kind of were, if you knew how to read them. For example, students had to fill out their father's occupation, because if your dad was a tailor or ran a smoked fish store, you were probably a Jew. They asked about your parents' birthplace, because if your mom and dad were from Ukraine or Russia, everyone knew what that meant. And they asked about students' future professional plans. Jewish applicants often aspired to be lawyers or doctors as a way of getting into the middle class. So putting that down as a career goal was counted against you. And with the application questionnaire, you had to attach a photograph so they could see if you looked, you know, Hebrew. Columbia also instituted a preference for students from outside New York City. The New Yorkers seeking admission were increasingly Jewish, so Columbia discovered the virtue of geographical diversity. It wanted more New Englanders and Southerners and Californians. This was in fact the root of today's idea that we want geographical diversity in a college class. It came from Columbia's desire to exclude Jews who were so often from New York City or other big urban areas. And it just keeps going. 
Columbia began to make recruiting trips to boarding schools. It established fellowships clearly meant for non-Jewish students. One of these fellowships had to go to students whose parents were born in America. Another one was specifically for white Christian American citizens. They also decreased the number of scholarships they had that were specifically meant for residents of Brooklyn because residents of Brooklyn became kind of a code word for Jews. I also asked Lisa Hurt about the story that Columbia began seeking out older students, freshmen who were 18 or 19 rather than 16 or 17. That was also one of the measures that the university took in order to not only keep out Jewish students, but in order to attract a certain type of student. It wasn't as much of a thing for students to skip grades in prep schools that were much more rigorous and much more regimented, perhaps, than was for really smart kids to skip grades in the New York City public school system. And they wanted to attract students from the prep school background. Let's pause for a minute and take stock of just how hard Columbia was working to keep Jews out in the years between the two world wars. They instituted an interview, reduced the size of the entering class, reduced the spots for New Yorkers, went on recruiting trips to New England prep schools, administered psychological tests to applicants, decreased the number of scholarships for Brooklyn boys, increased the number specifically for Christians, began scouring the country for geographical diversity, and screened for boys who were suspiciously young. Now, the administrators did reject a couple ideas as too extreme. For example, at one point, they had talked about banning all commuter students to get rid of kids from Brooklyn or the Bronx. Then there was a suggestion to require a physical exam to weed out scrawny, unathletic Jews. There was also a proposal from Dean Keppel to give out more scholarships to Canadians on the theory that Canadians weren't Jews. Imagine that, recruiting Canadians to keep out Jews. None of those plans ever came to pass. Still, in approximately 10,000 other ways, Columbia tried to massage its Jew quotient way down, and it worked. Without ever instituting a specific quota or cap on Jews, the number of Jews at Columbia was cut dramatically, possibly in half. Friends, if you like what you're hearing on Gatecrashers, you might also like another podcast that I host. Unorthodox is the universe's leading Jewish podcast, and each week, my co-hosts, Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz, and I discuss the news of the Jews, and we interview two guests, one Jewish and one a Gentile of the week. We talk to fascinating people. Some of our guests have included comedian Judy Gold, Congresswoman Katie Porter, authors like A.J. Jacobs, Chuck Klosterman, and more. Guys, this show is a lot of fun. It's irreverent, but not silly, at least not most of the time, and it will always get you thinking. You can find Unorthodox, a Tablet Studios production, wherever you listen to podcasts. Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. Let's return to the question of freshmen's age. As far back as 1910, Dean Frederick Keppel was complaining about how many Jewish boys were applying to Columbia after only three years of high school. And in fact, for many decades, New York City had had a special program to push bright students ahead. I, I was part of a school system that was, I would say it was tracked by IQ and test-taking ability. You might recognize that voice. It's Robert Siegel, the longtime host of NPR's All Things Considered, a New York City public school graduate, and a member of the Columbia class of 1968. 
uh, junior high school had something called the SP, a special track where you did three years and two. So I was in a class full of kids who were doing uh, seventh and ninth grade, skipping the eighth grade. Siegel attended Stuyvesant High School, a prestigious New York City public school, where the demographics of his class were evident by just flipping through the yearbook. So I'm opening to a page that has 14 kids' pictures, and here are their last names. Stanger, Starr, Stein, 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 Steiner, Steinmark Stern, Stuart Stonehill, Strong Sullivan Swiss. I'd say it was about three quarters Jewish. That, that, that would be my ballpark estimate of what it was. The vast majority of kids in Stuyvesant and Bronx Science had skipped eighth grade at that point. Jewish parents just loved the idea that their son, or perhaps daughter, could accelerate through high school, into college, and maybe into law or medical or dental school, and just get out into the workforce faster. You know, better to finish high school at 16. And I think that that obsession was popular among Jewish families. This idea of skipping grades was considered a great advantage. You'd be out of college at 20 or 19. Robert McCahey explained that the stereotype that Jews were in a hurry had some truth to it. Spending a good deal of what passed as college life in activities that were not connected with blowing through the place as fast as you can to get onto a living wage or get onto a professional school program. I just think that it was a matter of almost time budgeting. They just didn't have time to get involved in student. You know, again, these are exaggerated, they're stereotypes, but it would certainly be the case. If you were trying to get through Columbia as fast as you could, you took an overload in courses. You took hard courses. You had to study more. You didn't join a fraternity because you couldn't afford it. You weren't invited. But also, you didn't have time for that. They were perceived to be, and they were accurately perceived to be, in a hurry. Here I want to grapple with a rather delicate subject. It does sound anti-Semitic to talk about how Jewish applicants may have had different characters than the Protestant boys, or how they were less well-rounded. That's a pretty crude stereotype, and as a Jew, I take offense to it. But like many stereotypes, it contained a grain of truth. For perfectly understandable reasons, on average, first-generation students do work harder and are more ambitious than fourth-generation legacies with lots of family money. That's a good thing. They're more likely to be grinds or nerds. They have to be. They're trying to get ahead in America. But if what you value in your school are its gentlemanly traditions, like rowing crew or singing a cappella, then you do think about what happens when a quarter of your school is made up of boys who take the subway home to study all night and don't stay behind on campus to drink and sing and carouse. College admission officials make the same kind of calculations today. If you want a very good football team, you need a few more boys from Texas, even if it means rejecting a few nerds or nerdettes from Bronx Science or Boston Latin. And if you want a good tennis or lacrosse team, you are going to recruit at a prep school like Andover, not an inner city high school in Detroit or Cleveland. The bottom line is that as it tried to grow into a university with a major national reputation, Columbia was discovering a basic truth. It's hard to have it all. It's hard to admit a class with the perfect mix of athletes as well as scholars, singers as well as rowers. The way they talked about it was much cruder back then. They put it in terms of Jews versus Gentiles. But for the most part, it was not because they saw Jews as defective. Today, 
Many people condemn President Nicholas Murray Butler as some sort of terrible anti-Semite, but he really wasn't. He was a mild anti-Semite who was also trying to hold on to the Protestants who would keep his school well-rounded in the very limited way that they thought about such things. Sound familiar? This kind of thing happens right now. Today's admissions officers also end up rejecting many academically brilliant children of immigrants to make room for athletes and legacies and a cappella singers to achieve this superficial sense of diversity. They're just much subtler in the language they use. However, there was nothing polite or subtle about the most extreme measure Columbia took to keep their leafy Morningside Heights campus as Protestant, as Jew-free as possible. They actually created an entirely separate campus for the academically gifted but socially undesirable students. And where did they put it? Brooklyn. At last, we arrive at the story of Seth Lowe Junior College, the weirdest bit of long-forgotten Columbia history. When Lisa Hurt was a junior at Columbia, she heard some older students talk about this bit of lore, this story that nobody could prove, but that everybody somehow knew. At one time, there was actually a Columbia undergraduate college that was meant for Jewish students specifically. So she went into the university archives, went into old newspapers, and she found out that the legend was true. So it was a two-year college named for the former president of the university, Seth Lowe, and they operated nightly out of a few rented floors of Brooklyn College. And students could take general courses there in addition to prerequisites for graduate school. That college, the junior college, had the same admissions requirements as Columbia University. It had the same required GPA, the same application process, same exact tuition, but the education was of a decidedly lesser quality. They offered just a few courses at Seth Lowe, and it was only at night, and you didn't get a degree at the end. And when you transferred to Columbia, if you transferred to Columbia after two years, you weren't integrated into the university. You were the commuter student from Brooklyn who had to go home every night and couldn't really be in the clubs on campus or anything like that. So, here we have a night school in Brooklyn for ambitious commuter students who were smart but deemed not worthy to mix socially with real Columbia students. Could it be that this school was founded for Jews? Now, to be fair, you have to understand that this was a time in the early 1900s when big universities were all starting extension programs. The Harvard Extension School, which still offers adult education classes, was founded in 1910. And these extension schools were considered good civically-minded projects, good things for a university to do, to expand, to offer more classes, to more kinds of people. But in the case of Seth Lowe Junior College, there seemed to be the added benefit of sequestering out the Jews. Listen carefully to this 1927 letter from President Nicholas Murray Butler to Dean Herbert Hawks, in which he makes the case for Seth Lowe Junior College, which was going to open the following year. In this letter, Butler writes, The purpose of these junior colleges would be twofold. First, to relieve the pressure on the undergraduate or college work of the university itself, and second, 
to provide for groups having a certain geographic unit a two-year undergraduate course. Listen to that phrase Butler uses. The college is for, quote, groups having a certain geographic unit. As if Brooklyn boys needed a Brooklyn campus. As if they hadn't been making their way up to Columbia for decades. This campus in Brooklyn was also designed to keep, quote-unquote, an unfavorable demographic of students away from the Morningside campus, namely Jews. But not only Jews, also Italians, also Catholics. And they were able to say, okay, if we're not going to have these Jews on our campus, we have somewhere else for them to go. And this coded language, it was everywhere. In the university's annual report of 1928, the year that Seth Lowe Junior College opened, Dean Hawks is quoted as saying, it is not anticipated that students who receive the certificate at the end of two years spent in Seth Lowe Junior College will transfer to Columbia College. He goes on to promise that the Seth Lowe project, quote, can be carried forward without affecting the makeup of Columbia College in any way. Ah, right. So there we have it. Dean Hawks promising that the makeup of Columbia College will stay high quality. In other words, the Seth Lowe boys won't transfer in and change the Protestant character of the main campus. Those were Dean Herbert Hawks's words. And Dean Hawks, by the way, had long been on the record with his views about the Jewish influence. Way back in 1918, he had written, There is an increasing number of young men of good mind, serious purpose, and definite ambition who enter Columbia not as an institution at which they may live and develop, and after a few years of the maturing process, take up the work for which they may by that time be fitted, but who come to Morningside Heights at nine o'clock in the morning, determined to progress one day further towards some specific goal which never leaves their horizon. They have no use for college affairs. It is my belief that the time has come when it is imperative to bring about a separation of the undergraduates into two colleges, one of which shall retain the name, the traditions, and the aims of Columbia College. This group should consist of men who propose to continue their college residence at least three years, and who can form a compact and homogeneous body of students who can live, eat, and think together with all of the advantages that come from such an experience. So this was Herbert Hawks in 1918, proposing to divide the Columbia men in half. Half of them will be on campus at least three years. They will be a homogeneous group of residential dormitory men who will carry on the traditions, the fencing, the rowing, the acapella singing. The other half will be the students, the ones who work hard, grind away, go home every night just to do their homework. So here's the deal. If you're listening to this podcast, I know two things about you. You care about learning and you care about Jews. And if you care about both of these things, do we have an amazing podcast for you? It's called Take One, and it's hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz. Every day, we read just one page of the Talmud, a very old book offering some surprisingly modern insights into every aspect of modern life. Episodes are very short, just six or seven minutes each, 
and the guests are surprising. You never know when your favorite congressperson or Hollywood actor or NBA star may drop in for a dose of spiritual self-help, courtesy of Judaism's foundational ancient text. So start your day with a Talmudic shot of inspiration and visit us at tabletmag.com slash take one. In 1982, Robert Pollack became the first Jewish dean of Columbia College. He himself was a graduate of Columbia, and just listen to how he talks about his alma mater. What was it like to be a kid from Coney Island arriving here in the late 50s? My parents never finished high school. My four grandparents were immigrants from Eastern Europe who didn't speak English. I am the first person in my family to go to college, to finish high school. I can reconstruct in my emotional memory, taking the train from Stillwell Avenue to 42nd Street, switching to the number one IRT, getting off at 116th Street, and staring with my mouth open at the entranceway to Columbia University at Broadway facing east. I felt I had been transported with Dorothy to Oz. The roads were red brick and not yellow brick, but it was a red brick road to buildings in which books were important, studying was important, ideas were important, and that was it. And I felt that way ever since. As a Jewish boy for whom Columbia was everything, Pollock was especially offended when he learned about Seth Lowe Junior College. So Seth Lowe College was a totally cynical, totally manipulative decision to purify the Columbia College class guys whose athletic feats were, who cares, by taking all other kinds of guys, Catholic and Jewish in particular, and putting them in a place called Seth Lowe College. Didn't have the word Columbia at all. In 1928, Seth Lowe opened with about 300 students. It seems they were overwhelmingly Jews. And the Jewish boys knew and resented that they were getting the inferior version of Columbia, sort of Columbia light. It bothered them so much that some of them took to blaming each other, their fellow Jews, for making Seth Lowe such a pale imitation of Columbia. In 1932, the Seth Lowe student newspaper ran an editorial that said that the problem with Seth Lowe, this school set up to give a Columbia education to Jews, was that it had too many Jews. Here's Lisa Hurt again. In 1932, the editorial board ran an editorial that basically said that our school has terrible morale. There's no school spirit here. It's no wonder that we're looked down upon by our brethren, so to speak, at Columbia College who are snobbish about us because really we're terrible. And the reason that our morale is bad here and we, that we don't have any school spirit is because we're a school of Jews. And the Jews, they are, quote, sneering, hypercritical, protesting, and disloyal, end quote, and what's even more upsetting about this is that if you read the names of the editorial board, of course, they're all Greenberg and, you know, they're all Jewish names. The Jewish students had so internalized the negative perception of them by, by their peers. Um, and it's actually really sad to see. In 1936, 
Columbia announced that after eight years of Seth Lowe Junior College, it was disbanding the school, largely because it was too expensive to run. But also, one has to imagine, because of what was happening in world affairs in the 1930s, could it be that having a separate college for the racially undesirable was beginning to seem increasingly problematic? Here's Robert Pollock, the former dean. Because it was untenable. As Europe clarified that line of thought in the behavior and policies of Germany after 33, it became untenable to make a physical place for those people so that you didn't have to have them physically by you in your classes. Seth Lowe Junior College limped along for two more years until June 1938. When it closed, everything was inventoried and sent to the main campus. There still exist records of that inventory. So we know, for example, that wastebaskets, tea kettles, and even two pencil sharpeners, valued at $3.50 each, were boxed and sent uptown, where they were stored in room 110 at Seth Lowe Memorial Library in the center of Columbia's real campus. This building, the famous Lowe Library, was where the true Columbia boys, the Protestant kind, sat amidst books, smoked cigarettes, and studied. But not too hard. So this all gets us back to the 15-year-old genius we met at the top of the show. You know, the one who was forced to attend Seth Lowe Junior College. Because it lasted such a short time, and because its graduates went on to get degrees from other schools, very few people identified as alumni of Seth Lowe Junior College. It was kind of lost to history. But in the 1980s, Dean Pollock got curious about who had attended Seth Lowe, and what he found really surprised him. And I said to my colleagues who worked with me to run Columbia College, help me find out who graduated from Seth Lowe College. And I don't know how they did it, but we got some alumni lists, and Isaac Asimov was on that list. And I said, wow, Isaac Asimov, this guy made me who I am in some deep way, because when my parents and I lived in Seagate, there was no money for books. I used to take the bus to the Stillwell Avenue Public Library under the train station, and I'd read science fiction. I'd take out books, and I just sucked it down. And Asimov was fantastic. He had a world that I was going to inherit. So I found that he was a graduate of Seth Lowe College, knew nothing about anything about that. So I arranged to have Isaac Asimov come to my office. And it's Isaac Asimov. I'm just dumbfounded. And he's a nice guy, long hair, old, maybe as old as I am now. And I say, Mr. Asimov, I'm the dean of Columbia College. I understand you were not allowed to come to Columbia College. How did that fit? How did you think, what did you think? He said, I was so angry and I was so upset. I really wanted to go to Columbia College. I always wanted to go to Columbia College. There would not be many more Isaac Asimovs, brilliant Jewish boys rejected by Columbia because of their religion. After World War II, Columbia let go of its desire to artificially restrict its Jewish population, something that, as we will see in future episodes, other Ivy League schools weren't quite ready to do yet. 
And so, in the 1950s and beyond, Columbia became an intellectual powerhouse. Post-war Jewish students at Columbia included the poet Allen Ginsberg. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked. And the poet John Hollander. A bright, jeweled beetle, like a clump of fire, glowed at her throat as the sun went rolling out over my shoulder. Architect Robert Stern, musician Art Garfunkel, the list goes on. NPR's Robert Siegel sums it up pretty well. <laughs> well. One didn't feel isolated being a Jew at Columbia when I went there, so let's put it that way. Now, a caveat here. Even in the 1960s, Columbia still wasn't as Jewish as it might have been. We know that Columbia was still keeping out many brilliant Jewish boys, and we know this because of a very curious thing that happened in 1960. That year, Columbia had a new young admissions director named David Dudley. And Dudley decided, for whatever reason, that interviews and essays were kind of bunk. And he was going to admit a class based just on grades and SATs. And as it turned out, he ended up with a class that was overwhelmingly Jewish, some say as high as 80%. This caused a bit of a scandal. According to an article in the Columbia Spectator in June 1961, many alumni were infuriated by what they called, quote, the geographical and religious content of the class of 1964. This little oopsie became known as Dudley's Folly, and the admissions director, David Dudley, got forced out. He later became director of admissions at the Illinois Institute of Technology. After Dudley's Folly, Jewish numbers at Columbia fell back down to more like a quarter, maybe more, but not 80%. Columbia retained and still holds its position as a desirable school for Jewish students and Barnard, its women's college, even more so. Few American schools to this day have a more thriving Orthodox Jewish community or a more thriving secular Jewish community. And Columbia even made amends to Isaac Asimov. Here's Dean Pollack. So I called in one of the people who worked for me, and I said, take a pail and bring me a pail of water. And Asimov's looking at me, and they bring in the water. I said, take off your shoe and sock and put your foot in the water. And he looks at me, and he said, please, I said, I'm the dean of Columbia College. I'm asking you to do this. And he does it. And I say, Isaac Asimov, by the power vested in me as dean of Columbia College, I hereby declare you a graduate of Columbia College because you've just passed the swimming test. He cracks up. I crack up. People in my office crack up. I have no authority to give him a diploma, but he doesn't care and I don't care. We did it. This is the Ivy League, so let's get back to a cappella. Remember the 1920s when the Gentile fraternities were singing about how Jews had overrun their school? When the sheenies, when the sheenies, when the sheenies, by the 1990s, everything had changed and you were more likely to hear songs like this. That's the Jewish a cappella group at Columbia and Barnard. It's called Pismon, which in Hebrew means chorus. Yeah. 
That's it for Gatecrashers Episode 1, Columbia. Over the course of our series, which covers the last hundred years, we'll uncover the hidden history of Jews in the Ivy League, from the infamous anti-Jewish quotas to the fight for kosher food on campus. We'll see how everything about college admissions today, from campus interviews to legacy preferences, was, much like the push for geographic diversity, which we heard about in this episode, instituted to keep schools from becoming too Jewish. It all began when that first minority group tried to diversify the elite schools. By the time we reach the end of Gatecrashers with our Harvard episode, you'll also get to hear the truth about Jewish campus life today. But for now, subscribe to Gatecrashers and join us next time for episode two, Princeton and the Dirty Bicker of 1958. Gatecrashers is a podcast from Tablet Studios. The show is written and hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer. Our executive producers are Josh Cross, Stephanie Butnick, and Liel Leibowitz. The show is produced, engineered, and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, and Quinn Waller, with help from Ellie Blyer. Leon Crane is our research assistant. Our little college ditty was performed and orchestrated by Noam Osband. Special thanks to Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Sara Fredman-Ader, and Daron Rousquet of Tablet Studios, Alana Newhouse, Morty Landown, Wayne Hoffman, Samantha Hacker, Kurt Hoffman, and all the staff at Tablet Magazine, and Christine Ragassa, Megan Larson, Seth Higgins, Cody Fitzpatrick, and Peter Fox. Please go rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend. Do you have a story you want to share? You can write to us at gatecrashers at tabletmag.com or leave us a voice memo at 917-310-0456. That's 917 917- 3100456. Remember to tell us your name and how we can get in touch with you. For more information about this episode, please go to sethlowjuniorcollege.com. And for more about Tablet Studios, go to tabletmag.com/podcasts. By the way, you know who else went there? Celtics coach Red Auerbach. Oh, Harvard's run by millionaires, and Yale is run by boats, Cornell's run by farmers' sons, Columbia's run by Jews, who gave a cheer for Baxter Street, another one for Pell. And when the little genies die, the souls will go to hell. When the little genies die, when the little genies die. Yes, the souls will. Yes, the souls will go to hell.